Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John chapter 4, I'm going to read eight verses of Scripture while you're standing, and then I will read more of this passage, this chapter, as we, as we continue on. Continuing on through the sermon series of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ according to the Gospel of John, John writes in John chapter 4, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I am encouraged that Jesus got tired. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone, gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I am constantly amazed at how much of Jesus' ministry was spent dealing with one person. And how that, probably more so than this, one person, that one person that he dealt with, that their status in life was irrelevant and did not seem to influence, did not influence at all, whether or not Jesus was going to minister to that person. Now, Two weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 3, and Jesus is in a conversation, a private conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is the ultimate insider. Nicodemus, he's Jewish. He was a man, which may insult us today in our sensitivities, but the reality of that particular time and culture was women simply were not viewed and did not have the rights. Uh, it just was that type of culture in that day. Uh, it, just being a man made Nicodemus more of an insider. So he's Jewish, he's a man, he's a Pharisee. All of these things that make him the ultimate insider. And Jesus spends time with this one man and shows him that just as the nation of Israel experienced renewal in the Old Testament by the moving of the winds of God's Spirit in the Old Testament, so a man or woman could experience a spiritual rebirth by the moving of God's Spirit in their own life. And through this rebirth, they would have the ability to be part of God's kingdom, and through the belief in God's Son, they could have eternal life. And that was a tremendous revelation that was given to Nicodemus. But it shouldn't have been that much of a surprise because Nicodemus was an insider. And Jesus says, how is it that you're not understanding what I'm saying? You're a you're a ruler of the Jews. You know your scriptures by heart. You should get what I'm saying. 
Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound, but you can't tell where it comes from. You can't tell where it goes. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit of God. But Nicodemus should get this. And Jesus continues in his conversation with this woman at the well who is the exact opposite of Nicodemus. In verse 10, Jesus answered her and he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well to drink from himself, as his sons did and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, as we preach through the book of John, I'm taking a sermon, mostly a sermon, a chapter. I took two sermons from chapter one. I won, that's one chapter you could have taken ten sermons from, but uh, I was trying to move along through the book of John. Uh, but I'll preach one sermon from John 4 today and move on. The man considered by many people, and there's no real way to stack rank preachers, and you shouldn't, but the man that is considered by many to be the greatest biblical expositor of the 20th century was a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Jones pastored for 30 years at the Westminster Chapel in London uh, from around 1939 to 1968. Uh, he was struck down ill as he was preaching through the Book of Romans. And he always believed that the reason he had to stop was because God stopped him because the next sermon he was going to preach was going to be on living in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he did not believe that he had experienced that enough to preach on it, and so God had stopped him. Now, whether or not that was really the reason, we don't know, but that's what jo Jones certainly felt. Jones was unique in his theology of that time. Um, that he was a continuationist. He believed in the operation and the work of the Holy Spirit was for the church today, which made him a real uh, renegade in a lot of his, even the circles that he ran in. But Jones would preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Friday nights, three times a week. People would pack into that chapel wall to wall, at least 12, 1,500 people three times a week, Many young people. He was very popular with, uh, with students. Uh, his sermons were published every week in the newspaper. Uh, he rarely, I think maybe two or three times, he agreed to preach on television. He just thought it was too constraining. Uh, but today he's enjoyed a real resurgence uh, in his preaching. There are apps that uh, you can get uh, for just his sermons. There have been numer numerous biographies written about Jones. And as far as a Bible expositor uh, in the 20th century, there are few people who would have matched Martin Lloyd-Jones. But Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 56 sermons from John chapter 4. 56 sermons. I will preach one. Um, they actually put all these sermons into a book. Uh, the, the text of these 56 sermons are in a book. I own the book. I have not read it. I read the first chapter of the first sermon. And 
the one thing that I got from the, the first sermon that he preached on John 4 was that he contended that the Gospel of John, the theme, the entire theme, if you had to have one overarching theme, is that Jesus gives us eternal life in the age to come and Jesus gives us the fullness of life in the here and now. So Jesus says in John later on, I have come that you may have life and that life more abundantly. So you have churches that are called abundant life church. That comes from the saying of Jesus that in this life, if you are in Christ, you have a much more full and abundant life. And to that we would say a thousand percent yes, that life is better walking with Jesus Christ. And I have a, a fuller life because I am in Christ. But not just that, that there is in the age to come. I actually will live forever. There is no, I preached a sermon a couple years ago uh, at another church. There is no such thing as death. Uh, it just, it doesn't exist. For the believer, death is a foreign idea. Even if your body dies, you will not die. And we understand that there is eternal punishment as well. Uh, but Jesus is talking about eternal life in Christ, in glory. And Jones says that is the theme of the book of John. And we see that in this story with the woman at the well, the woman who we don't even know her name. Jesus says, if you drink from the water that I give you, you will have life forever. Now, if I get thirsty, I go get a bottle of water. This is probably the biggest scam that's been perpetrated upon humanity in the last hundred years, but... Uh, we still, we buy several cases a month uh, when there's perfectly good tap water for free. I've tried the filters, all that. Uh, still, it's bottled water. I can get a bottle. If I'm out, I can get it filtered from the refrigerator. I can drink it from the tap if I have to. I can go to one of the any umpteen restaurants around us and I can order, uh, say collectively, we can order water, tea, coffee, juice, soda. If you're thirsty today, you probably are not in a panic state about what am I gonna to do to satisfy that. Drink is plentiful all around us. These people lived thirsty. They worked hard. It was hot, it was dusty. There was no air conditioning or fans. And there wasn't like there was water everywhere. They had to be very intentional about getting a drink. As a good friend of mine uh, and I, we've had this conversation. He said to me, he said, do you realize that for nearly all of humanity, even up to the last few decades in the modern world, people got up every day with one goal, and that was, I need to get to the end of the day. I need to survive. I need to make sure that my family has food, and I've got to figure out how that's going to happen. That has been the lot in life for most of humanity. And it was no different from, for these people. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have fully stocked with, with, with drink. They had to go to a well to get the water. And this woman has a job to do. She's drawing water. It's her job. It's her duty in that culture. She is going to draw water for the livestock, for the rest of the family back home. She is on a mission. And here this man, this stranger, is telling her to get her a drink. And what is puzzling to her is, why is this Jew speaking to me? Because Jews don't speak to Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans still exist today. 
it's likely that you could, more than likely, that you could go, get on a plane, fly over, meet the Samaritans that exist today. They would be directly related to this woman in this story. At the beginning of the 20th century, they were nearly extinct, but today there are over 800 Samaritans that are still alive today. They all live in one village outside the West Bank. They've kept their bloodline pure for 2,000 years by avoiding marriage with outsiders. So this is a real people group, uh, just to, like it was 2,000 years ago. And this is a real woman in history that we're reading about. She had a, a real life and real struggles and pain. And she knew what it was like to be discriminated against by the Jews who considered themselves to be superior. And this unnamed woman, she knows how Jesus looks down at her. My bloodline isn't pure, she would think. It was corrupted by the population of numerous, because remember, Samaritans were Jews. They start out being Israelites. And they were the northern ten tribes of the kingdom that was known as Israel. And their population was corrupted by these heathen nations coming from the outside who were implanted inside that northern kingdom about 800 years before Jesus lives and they, they corrupt the bloodline. So the Jews would look at Samaritans, and I know this is a derogatory term, but I'm trying to get the idea across to you. Jews looked at them as half-breeds. That is exactly what they would have said. Our modern language, that is what would have been an accurate term. You're half-breeds. As Jews, we do not intermix, we do not intermingle. We marry other Jews. You people, you let outsiders come in, heathen nations, and corrupt this bloodline. So now you're not a Jew anymore, you're now Samaritans, and we don't talk to you. We will cross the other side of the street to avoid walking past you. They were, like, discrimination is nothing new. It's right here in Scripture. And now this woman, on top of being a Samaritan, she's had five husbands. And maybe they were all divorced, maybe they all died, it was chances were probably it was a combination of the two but she is on man number six and the guy that she's with now it's it's not a good situation so religiously she's heretical racially she's impure and morally she's considered unclean this is not a woman that you think that the son of god would sit down on a well after he sends all the other guys off to have a to go get food like i, I need to talk to this woman alone I, I, you need to go off to uh, you need to go off to town to get food because her and I have something to deal with, even though her reputation is at the bottom. I went to school, fourth grade at what was called Lincoln School. I was trying to figure last night what year it was. It had probably been fourth grade, 1984, somewhere around there. And that building, just a couple de decades before that, was a all African-American school because segregation existed. And so that school was the school where all the African-American children would go to. And that school was a member of the Southern Illinois Conference of Colored High Schools. All capital letters, that was what that conference was called. And a couple decades after desegregation, I would attend that school in that building. This story would be like Jesus going to the well and asking this woman for a drink would be like a white man going to Lincoln School during segregation and asking an African-American woman for a drink. During segregation, there were colored water fountains. They had signs on them and there were the water fountains for the white people. 
and you did not cross and mix. It would be like an African-American woman in the 1950s in the South filling up her cup from the colored water fountain and a white man walking up and asking, lady, I, I need a drink from that cup. Wouldn't happen. Would be unheard of. On both sides, it would be offensive and outrageous. Now that's, you know, we think about that and think, well, that is offensive and outrageous that that even existed. Uh, but that was the reality in our culture at one time. And this is the reality 2,000 years ago in the Bible. This is the dynamic that's going on. And that, that analogy is not a stretch because the, the same racial hatred is going on in that culture at that time. Why is this man talking to me? Now, we can only guess what is running through her mind. Maybe this man heard that I've been married five times and I'm living with this guy now and uh, I can really see this woman thinking maybe he's hitting on me. Like she doesn't know he's God in flesh, this is just another guy. Uh, instead of a pickup line, hey can I buy you a drink, maybe it's uh, hey can you get me a drink. Uh, that's, that's a reasonable idea that's going through her mind. Maybe you know, he's, he's hitting on me. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth. But whatever she's thinking, she is puzzled and she is confused. And so she asks him point blank, why are you talking to me? And Jesus is the master of deflecting questions in Scripture. He said, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't waste your time asking me these questions. I have living water that you need. And I like this woman. I appreciate her wit because I think you pick up even some sarcasm in the story. And she says, you don't even have anything to draw water with. Like you showed up empty-handed. You showed up at the game with no bat. I mean, what is, what's going on here? You don't have anything to draw water with. And the implication being that the only water that's here is the water in this well, and I will drink this water and get thirsty again. So if you have living water, I don't see it, and you don't have anything to draw that living water with, because it would be in another well. So all this is going on in, in this story. And then she goes, and furthermore, the well is deep. And by the way, this is Jacob's well. He gave this to us. Are you greater than Jacob? And this is the second chapter in a row that Jesus uses water to demonstrate something of infinite value. Water will flow from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, it's implicit. It's not direct, but John chapter 1 is implicit in the very first verse because it goes back to, to Genesis 1. But then in John 3, John 4, John uh, 7, 8, all of this, the uh, water is everywhere in John. Like John's using this theme. Because Jesus says to her in verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him insert and her in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now Jesus makes clarification. Lady, I'm not talking to you about the water in Jacob's well. You drink that water and yes, you'll be thirsty again. I have different water. I have living water and it's the only water that can satisfy your dead, dry, hungry soul. Because nothing else can satisfy us except that which Jesus Christ gives to us. Money will vanish. Beauty will fade. Relationships will crack. Careers will crumble. Pleasure will pass. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy our soul. So if people who come from a background that 
equate successful Christianity with following rules and fear and guilt were the order of most worship services, um, there is a more excellent biblical way to live and walk with God. Be satisfied in Him. Drink the water that will make every other cup repulsive. Drink the water that will make you nauseous at any other pleasure that is not rooted in Jesus Christ. One of the mantras of my life the last few years, and I did not invent this saying, I just borrowed this saying from elsewhere, is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Let me say that again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. This is the language of the Psalms. This is the language of the Apostle Paul. Enjoy God. Find your pleasure in Him. Get your satisfaction in the person of Jesus Christ. Get your fulfillment from the infilling of the power of the Holy Spirit. And nowhere else can pleasure be found. If you find your pleasure in God, nowhere else can pleasure be found that can hold a candle to the pleasure that is in God. If you equate your Christian walk with, I have to do this, this, and this, and I check these boxes, you will live far below your privileges that you have in Christ. God wants us to find our pleasure in Him. The greatest way that I know to combat sin in your life, the greatest way, because if you try to combat sin by willpower, I'm tired of doing that. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to make a resolution. I am going to defeat sin today. You're probably in trouble. We've all proven. We have a great track record of showing that that doesn't work well in people's lives. I read an article years ago by a preacher, and the article was, the key to stop sinning is to simply stop sinning. I'm like, duh. There are people who have addictions. Even secular science will distinguish between physical addiction and psychological addiction. I don't care which one it is. They are both equally real. People have addictions to every sort of thing. There are people that will cut themselves because they are frustrated with their life that they can't stop doing what they're doing. And they will do self-mutilation and self-harm. You're telling me that that person can get up tomorrow morning and say, I think I'll stop this today. No, why? Because they're slaves to sin. They're in bondage to sin. They desperately want out and they can't get out. I say, one, there is a delivering power of God's Spirit. But two, is that you've got to find pleasure in God, enjoyment, satisfaction in Him that's far deeper than emotional. It's not a feeling. It is a true joy and satisfaction in Him that when you find such pleasure in Christ that when you are offered this sinful experience, whatever it is, that you will be able to look at that and say, I understand that there's pleasure in sin for a season. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, but at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So one, the pleasures of God are eternal, the pleasures of sin are temporal, but two, the pleasures of sin pale in comparison to the pleasures that are found in Jesus Christ. And when you find your 
satisfaction in Christ, your fulfillment in Him and Him alone, not in what He gives you. I'm not preaching prosperity gospel this morning. I abhor the prosperity gospel. It is a damnable gospel that makes me ill to say that come to Jesus and everything will be just fine in your life and you'll get rich and have lots of money and uh, send your seed money right now, dial 1-800. No, 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 that's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm preaching. I'm saying you don't find your satisfaction in Christ's gifts, you find your satisfaction in the person of Jesus Christ Himself. And when you find that pleasure, that joy, you can look at something else and say, oh yeah, I know I would get satisfaction in that, but I mean, it's be like me handing you a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill, saying, which one do you want? You can have one or the other, but which one do you want? Except the pleasures of God are not a hundred times better than the pleasures of this world. They are of infinite value. You cannot even measure them. Drink the water that makes every other cup that is offered to you repulsive. Drink the water that will make you nauseous at any other pleasure that is not rooted in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says that the water He will give you will become a spring inside you welling up to eternal life. In the 16th century, there was a Spanish explorer named Ponce de Leon who traveled to what is now Florida searching for the Fountain of Youth. And based on what I've seen when I have went to Florida, there are lots of retired people who still go to Florida searching for the Fountain of Youth. Someone should tell them it's not in Florida. I have a grandmother that passed away two months ago, but she told me a few years ago, I think it was in an email, that she considered retiring to Florida, but when she went and visited, she decided that it looked like God's waiting room. Uh, and it's like, yeah, I've been there, I can see that. There is no fountain of youth there or anywhere else, but the legend of a fountain of youth dates back to at least 500 years before the time of Jesus Christ. So when Ponce de Leon goes searching for it, it's already a thousand years, uh, two thousand years at that time, uh, a myth. It, the, the water that you drink in Christ, it won't make you younger in this life. It might help you lead a lifestyle that doesn't make you feel old on Monday morning, but it's not going to make you any younger, but it will give you eternal life. And that is not a myth. We will live forever in a restored creation. This is language that is filled in the Old Testament, in the prophets. It is an idea that is Jews, even today, really understand this idea about the Bible, that what is to come is a restored creation. Not that we're all going to float off and be some kind of ethereal spirit thingies floating on clouds. That idea is nowhere in Scripture. The idea is that we will live in a physical universe just like we do now. That is the future of the child of God. The Apostle Paul says we will have bodies like as unto His glorious body. So it's 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection of the dead is not something that's going to start in the future. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is really trying to show us the resurrection of the dead is not something that is going to happen in the future. It has already started happening. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. He set the example. He rose first. There's this long interval in between, but someday we will all rise with Him again, either at the time of His second coming or those who are dead already 
will rise first. That there will be a physical resurrection. It's not a myth. God will make this world right and we will be invited by Him as the people of God to participate in a restored creation. But this world is thirsty and we have this living water. And that is what Jesus is offering to this woman who just a few minutes ago was in disenchanted, disenfranchised, third-class citizen. And now the God of the universe is offering her grace through an invitation to drink living water. And so she responds to him in verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go tell your husband to come here. She answered, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, You are right in saying I don't have a husband, for you have had five, and the one that you have now is not your husband, and what you have said is true. And Scripture does not give us these details, but whatever happened to the previous five husbands, she would have suffered. Nobody loses a husband, whatever the reason, uh, without there being pain in her life. So Jesus is here ministering to her. So this woman says, after he tells her about herself, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, she's, when she says, you say... She's talking about the Jews. She's not saying that Jesus said this. She's talking about you say, the Jews say, that Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. Because the Samaritans had their own place to worship. The Jews had uh, their place in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. Like You don't have to wait on it any longer. The kingdom of God is being inaugurated. It's being launched right now. It's here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, when she says our fathers worshipped in this mountain, she's referring to the fact that while Jews worshipped in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, the Samaritans, they built their own temple on the mountain where the hill probably is a better description of, of where they were at. So which is it, Jesus? Where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus graciously grants this woman spiritual insight and revelation. The hour is coming and it's now here. The kingdom of God has come to you. In John 3, Jesus is preaching the kingdom to Nicodemus. In John 4, Jesus is preaching the kingdom to this woman at the well. Saying worship is more than an activity that happens on a mountain or inside these four walls one hour a week. We have had the unfortunate reduction of this passage to take it to mean spirit and truth means Holy Spirit and Scripture, truth and the a move of God. And it may include that, but it is so much more bigger than that. How you worship is more important than where you worship. That's what he's trying to get across. That worship shouldn't just happen here once a week, but worship should happen in houses. Worship should happen in coffee shops, in schools, on the job. Everywhere you go, there ought to be something that you can do that is an act of worship. There is a way that you handle your finances that is done as unto the Lord, that is an act of worship. There is a way that you can conduct yourself on a job that is done as unto the Lord, as an act of worship. 
But it must be done in spirit and truth. It must come from our hearts and our heads. It must involve our emotions and our intellect. So Jesus invites her to worship. He does not invite her to a worship service. He invites her to worship. And that is a distinction with massive implications. Jesus is inviting an outsider to worship. When we label ourselves as saints and unchurched people as sinners, we unintentionally create an us versus them mentality both in our minds and theirs. Let's be honest, sainthood is a myth. Who among us is a true saint? Like, we come together once a week, this is the best version of everybody that we get of each other. Like, this is, this is as good as it gets. But none of us are, are perfect. Uh, the only difference between us and somebody else that hasn't come to Christ is that we have been counted righteous in Christ and they haven't yet. We're not better than them. So the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, man, what a powerful revelation she gets to hear. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. The Jews and the Samaritans both looked for the promised Messiah. And Jesus came and changed everything in his world in history and in our world today, in our lives and for all the future that is to come, Jesus changed everything. So how do you respond when Jesus shows you grace? Well, you don't have to wait. He, He already has. The entire message of what Christ did for us at Calvary is a message of grace. How will you react to the news that the sovereign God of the universe gave His Son who was and is God and is man as a sacrificial offering for our sins? How will we react to that grace-saturated news? Verse 27, Just then His disciples came back and they marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? But they certainly thought it. And so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and were coming to see Him. Come see a man. There is grace for our city. It is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the invitation is, come see a man. She had to tell someone else. Someone once described the Old Testament as a come and see religion and the New Testament as a go and tell religion. And the Old Testament was come to our temple. Solomon says, come to my temple queen and see the beauty and splendor. And she says, I've heard about it, but words couldn't describe it. The splendor, the glory, the temple that would have cost billions with a B, billions of dollars in our dollars today. It was a come and see religion. The New Testament's not that. The New Testament is always go. Go outside these four walls. Commission outside these four walls and go and tell to come see a man. It's not come see our preaching is not come and see what we do on Sundays, which we want people to come and, and be part of that, but it's go and tell people about Jesus. Come and let us show you the Jesus in the Scriptures. Come and let us show you Jesus in everything that we do. And I close in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days, and many more believed because of his word. 
And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And by the end of the story, we move from Jesus showing grace to one woman to Him showing grace to the entire world through a revelation of His identity. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Religious people missed it, but outcast Samaritans received who Jesus was. This is what John proclaimed. This is what Jesus proclaimed in John 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But now the outcast of the society declares it. In John 3, it's Jesus declaring, but in John 4, it's the outcast saying, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And now we, the people of God together, declare that God, that same Jesus, continues to show His grace to our world in the very same way that He showed grace to the woman at the well. He offered her living water to someone who was dying of thirst. Not physical thirst, she was dying of spiritual thirst and she didn't even know it. It's a water that gives eternal life to anyone that drinks. It is a water that satisfies every longing and yearning of a person's soul. We know it's not literal water. A couple chapters later, Jesus will stand up and declare, talk about the waters that will flow from your innermost being. Out of your, out of your belly will flow waters of living water. And then John says, this is the key of the Spirit. He's talking about His Spirit. He's talking about His presence. He's talking about having the presence and Spirit of God active in your life and active inside of you that you become the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the promise of the infilling of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for everybody. It's not for a select few. On the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon people, Peter has to clarify and said, for this promise, what promise? Well, the promise that Joel made. There's a whole sermon there. The Father gave the promise to the Son of the Holy Spirit and the Son turns around and gives the Holy Spirit to His people. That's chapter 2, verse 33, 34. Peter says that the Father gives the promise to the Son and the Son gave this to the, to the people. He's, he's centering the person of Jesus Christ right there. He's making Jesus Christ at the forefront, saying Jesus is not here physically, but He's pouring out His Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit is being poured out here among us today. And that promise that He says is unto you and to your children, and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's for everybody. Everybody can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Stand with me this morning and let's pray. Father, Your Spirit is here because You fill all time and all space, so we know that You're here, but Your Spirit is like the wind, and it moves, and we feel it, and we know it's real. And I'm praying this morning that Your Holy Spirit would be a real, intangible experience and life-transforming power in the lives of everybody that is here this morning. We thank you that as the people of God here today that we are a people that believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for us today. It's not just for people that lived 2,000 years ago, but the reality of your Spirit is what makes our walk with you more than just 
a historic reality, but that it is something that is real today, relevant, that we don't just read words that are thousands of years old, but that that same Jesus that walked among us, that walked among your people 2,000 years ago, lives inside of us through the power of His Holy Spirit. The same God, the one true, infinite, eternal God of this universe, now dwells inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who does not have that, who is not filled with the Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that through a sovereign work of grace that you will lead them to that time in their life where they will be filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To know you in ways, to experience you, to see your glory, to see your glory in your word, to see your glory working in their lives through a very real way that you dwell inside of us. We are the temple, our bodies are the temple of your spirit and that you dwell inside of us and that we abide in you and that you abide in us. And we embrace that promise this morning. I pray this morning as we go through this week, Lord, that we would be sensitive to the leading of your spirit to know that the steps of a good man are ordered to the Lord, that you are leading and guiding and directing each one of us down paths of righteousness to help us to be lights and witnesses in a very lost and broken and dark world. Minister to us, keep us, and Lord, this week we are going to be worshipers of you. We ask all of this this morning in the name above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you this morning.